it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You're listening to Riddle Me That. Brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Three Men and a Mystery, Malice, Zodiac Speaking, all things crime and DNA ID. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Riddle Me That is a true crime podcast that deals with adult themes. Some episodes explore disturbing topics such as murder, abuse, sexual violence, drug abuse, suicide, and self-harm. Please listen at your own risk. Theories discussed in episodes may not be the opinion of the host. Welcome back to the show. I'm Jules, and this is Riddle Me That True Crime. So when I first covered this case, it was near the start of the pandemic. And kind of because of poor audio and just an overall sense of dissatisfaction with my first 30 episodes, well, here we are. So I'm really lucky to be joined by Stuart from the phenomenal new podcast, British Murders. Welcome to the show, Stuart. Hi, Jules. Thanks for having me. So can you tell my listeners a little bit about what got you into podcasting and what they can expect from your podcast? Yeah, so I got into podcasting in the middle of 2020, mainly because of the pandemic and something to pass the vast amount of time that we had to spare. I've always been into podcasting and my friend and I started um, a podcast together, which it started off well. It was an interview style one. It wasn't true crime. That sort of went in a different direction that both of us thought and that ended up sort of being cancelled and in the meantime I started my own one. So British Murders is a true crime podcast, focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers and it's going really well. It started in December last year so it's only a couple of months deep but it's going really well and the community's embraced my style, my voice and it's really good to be part of the true crime community as it were. Yeah, it's a really good community we've got, isn't it? I really like it, yeah. I am really feel welcomed and you can just reach out and people are there to support you and help you. It's a really good community to be a part of. Yeah, Stuart's podcast is like the perfect kind of podcast. If you just say you're commuting to work or you're going for a walk around the block with the dog, it's a good, you know, like 15 to 30 minute kind of chunk where you really get like a good in-depth coverage of the case, but it's not like two hours long. So it's something that is sustainable that you can just kind of go, okay, I've got this time to myself. And so I'm going to spend this, you know, 15 to 30 minutes and I'm going to listen to this, you know, case from England. 
Yeah, and that was the intention. It was always to be in a bite-sized format, I call it. The only reason for that is personal preference. Sometimes if I'm you know, walking a dog or if you're going commuting to work and it's 20 to 30 minutes and a lot of podcasts are between 40 and 60 minutes, which is absolutely fine. It's good to get an in-depth overview of a case in that sense. But sometimes you just want a quick in and out and to get an overview of the case. And my theory is if you want to learn more about the case, I have my references there at the bottom. And if you are interested in it, there's plenty of articles out there or videos on YouTube that you can go and research research the case further. So that's my sort of style. And that's just my personal preference. That's why it's in that format. As I mentioned at the beginning, I have a very recent case for you today. Okay. Let's go back in time to March when the pandemic had spread and the day-to-day lives of humans had really changed drastically. So news of the pandemic spreads globally. Fear grips the world. In Salty in England, a teenager is upset by the lockdown. He knows he'll miss his girlfriend who lives 280 miles away in Pocklington. On March 26, 2020, he walks out the door. His family never sees him again. And he doesn't pop up at his girlfriend's house. The 16-year-old simply vanishes. This is a story of the disappearance of Owen Harding. See, I've never heard of this case, but I like that it's recent and I think it's going to be relatable to a lot of people listening. Yeah, I think it's a good one just because so many people have struggled with their mental health and just with personal struggles during the pandemic and being separated from loved ones. This is not only current, but it's timely in the sense that we're still all struggling with the pandemic now and it's nearly a year later. It is. And to be honest, this is not what people want to hear, but I am not very optimistic for 2021. I kind of always had this feeling that it was going to be worse. A lot of people last year, 2020, were thinking, oh, next year we'll book a holiday. We'll go to this festival. We'll go to this event. And they were booking things and they've all been cancelled. And it's sort of like, it's not gone anywhere. It's actually started worse than last year, because at least we had three months last year where we weren't locked down. This is in England anyway. We got locked down in March. So this timeline fits the first lockdown. And so at least we had January, February, March in 2020 where we weren't locked down and we could do whatever we want. But since last year, it's just been on and off lockdowns, not knowing what's going on. It's really been a difficult time. Yeah. And I think this just really mirrors that, like that, you know, sense of kind of hopelessness and people just having no sense of hope for the future because they don't know when it's going to end. And remember being a teenager and like, you know, being told that you're going to be locked down for a few months even would just seem like your life is over. Okay, so let me give you a bit of background on Owen Harding. He was good at soccer, or if you're not in North America, he was good at football. He had many trophies lining the shelves of his room from his three-year tenure playing with the Wooding Dean Wanderers. Yeah, Wanderers is a common name for football teams in the UK. Um, the main one is Wolverhampton Wanderers or Wolves as we call them but that is our national sport and it is football not soccer I think you guys are the only say you guys I mean North Americans people that say soccer whereas everyone else in the world says football (laughs) it's true it's so true but do you guys actually have American football in England or do you just not have it at all I think we do have it I don't personally play it, but I know people that have played it. So I imagine that it is played in some aspect. The coverage we get on TV is from the NFL. We don't see many college games unless you go deep into like a sports package on on cable or Sky, as, as most people have in the UK. But I'm sure it happens. It's just not common. It's basically football or nothing. Like in America, they have basketball, baseball, American football, 
um, you know, all these hockey, all that kind of stuff. Here, it's basically football or nothing. That's how it kind of, the mentality is here. Yeah, I'm from Canada originally, so it's like hockey or nothing. <laughs> yeah, it's a similar thing with football here. Yeah. So as far as school goes, Owen's mother, Stella, and her late husband had chosen to homeschool Owen. He appeared to thrive in the environment where he could kind of move at his own pace through the schoolwork. He'd previously attended an alternative school. So I know what an alternative school is in North America, but is there any special British definition I should know about? See, I'm not really sure I've heard of an alternative school. I would assume maybe it's something for either people with special learning needs. Is that right? That's just a guess. In I remember in high school when people went to alternative school, a lot of times it was like people that had issues at home, perhaps like they'd skipped a lot of school. Maybe there was like, Mm -hmm. you know, issues in the home with, you know, alcohol or drugs. And that's not across the board. There could have been behavioral issues with the individual, but things that led them to not be able to stick to kind of, I guess you call it a rigorous schedule of, you know, high school courses. There were things that were like impediments in their life to being able to do that. So they attend this different school and I don't know if it's less structured or there's less required, but I just remember that like you know the kids that would be like the quote unquote bad kids in my high school and I'm not saying they were bad and that's very reductive but they would be going to an alternative school if that makes sense yeah again there's places here where it's full of students who might have been sort of victims of you know domestic abuse violence from parents as a poor upbringing that kind of thing i don't know if there's a name for it maybe it is an alternative school but there are like colleges and stuff that just have students of that sort of ilk and then you have your your regular sort of school so i had an episode recently where i had to explain the difference between the terms for the schooling system in north america and in england so in england this is on a tangent but in england we call the government-funded schools, we call those state schools. Public schools is private schools, whereas your government, North American, government-funded schools, this is how confusing it is, Jules, they're <laughs> called state schools, right? Am I getting this right? Public schools in the UK are the schools that people pay to go to. That's what I just got into a conversation with Jenny from It's Murder Up North with, because I was like, okay, so in North America, it's just like regular old school, like, I don't know what you'd call them in Canada, just public school. And then I said to her, I'm like, so don't you guys have like private school and then public schools, like posh school, it's like school you pay for. She's like, no, public school is the school that everybody attends. But I'm like, no, yeah. <laughs> someone else who's British told me that public school was like posh private school. So I'm confused. Yeah, it is confusing. To me, public school is like where the posh people pay for their children to go and and be educated privately. So a public school to me is a private school, whereas state schools are just the normal schools where the public go to. Yeah, you got me doubting myself now. No, that was my original understanding of it too, because I had somebody else who was British explain this to me that they were like, no, public school is posh school. And I'm like, well, not in North America. It's just everybody goes to public school. And I mean, in Canada, the public school system is really, really good. So, I mean, I pretty much knew nobody, regardless of, you know, how affluent their family was that went to private school, unless they were in a French immersion program. 
Mm-hmm. I think it's different in the UK though, right? Like there's, I think a lot, I think there's a lot better and a lot like more options with regards to what we in North America would call private school, but you guys call public school. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So your private school is our public school basically, but we have like high school and then you can go to college, but you can go to sixth form college, which is an, it's college years, but it's in the same school that you did high school with. So not a separate college but you can go to a dedicated college, then you can go to university. But the years we have, because you guys have grades and stuff, like grade one and grade two, we have years. So we, we have year one, year two, all the way up. High school finishes for us at year 11. And then you would go on to college for two years. And then if you wanted to, you would go on to university after that. Yeah, you guys are lucky because you finish when you're, what, like 16, right? You finish school at 16, college at 18, I believe. We're not even yeah, done. Finish- high school until 18. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's the thing. You're like high school last couple of years basically is our college. So we just get through it quicker, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. But I still don't think like in this story that, that either one of our definitions of alternative school is accurate for Owen. Like I kind of have a feeling that it's just like more of a school for artistic kids because he had a really good mom and a really good home life and he was a good kid. So I don't think mm-hmm. he had any of the things that would kind of define what we had defined an alternative school as. But like I just said, he was a gifted artist and it was said that his entire bedroom wall was wallpapered with his creations. I feel like I was a sensitive teenager as well, although I only got into painting in my adult years. Did you ever do any painting or art, Stuart? I couldn't draw to save my life unfortunately. I never thought I was a creative person until I started doing this podcast. And the only creative aspect is doing like the cover art and that kind of stuff. But painting and drawing, I do love art. I probably don't have enough hanging up in the house, which is a bit of a shame, but, and I can appreciate it. But some things I appreciate from a distance because I know I'm not good at. So with art, I just leave it to people who are creative. So I wouldn't touch it because I'd just be rubbish at it. You want to make sure you encourage your daughter to do it because it's so important yeah. for kids to feel they're so good at art and to feel like they're encouraged to be creative. I wish I had more of that when I was a kid. She's a better artist than me and she does nonsense paintings that are nothing, but it's better than what I would do. Ah, look at like Basquiat's creations. His paintings have gone, I think, for like a record high at auctions and some people say they're horrible he happens to be my favorite artist and there's something very childlike about there's always a political statement in his paintings but it almost looks like a child did them yeah i think the good thing about art is it is subjective so you see some art where it's just like a toilet seat placed on the side and that's classed as art some people might think that's ridiculous but then some people might think wow i really see what he's saying there very profound that toilet seat (laughs) yeah so let's talk a little more about who owen was as a person he was said to be really wise and mature for his age he was intelligent and he got good grades so it seemed that he was kind of a typical teenager who loved art soccer football sorry his family and his girlfriend I don't know like what typical is or what it even really means, but it sounds like Owen was a really good kid who didn't give his mom too many problems. He sounds like the type of kid that kind of every parent wishes that they had. It's interesting that he was called wise at such a young age. I think that's a strange thing to call a teenager. Sure, I get. 
that's fine. If he likes art and stuff and he's into his drawing and he's, you know, he's got his girlfriend and his family. That's, I think Wise is a strange one. That's what stuck out for me there. But it sounds like the perfect kid so far. Yeah, it really does. And I think perhaps it's just meant to kind of be synonymous with mature in that this is a kid that isn't out drinking. He's not out gallivanting around and, you know, making basically an ass of himself. This is a kid that has his hobbies, has his likes, and he really just kind of sticks to a routine. He's, I mean, I, I certainly gave my parents headaches when I was his age. I was not good like he was. And it took me, you know, a couple of years to kind of get myself in order. So I can admire a kid who isn't out drinking with their friends and out all hours. But think of it this way, Jules. I mean, I don't know the end of this story, but if you're a child like Owen and you grow up, quote unquote normal which is a bit of a sensitive word to say and he's very sensible he's very wise I think part of growing up is going out and rebelling and going out and drinking and just rebelling against your parents getting that out of your system so that when you become an adult and you get more mature and you get more experienced you've already done all the kid stuff so I think it's important to get that out of the way as, as hard as that is for parents I imagine but I was the same. And you just get that out of your system. And then eventually you think, right, I can settle down now because I've got all that out of the way. Yeah, I suppose what you're saying is true, right? You get it out of the way. You don't ever feel as though you've missed something. It's sort of like people who marry their high school sweethearts at like 18 or something. And then, you know, in their early 30s, they're like, what did I do? You know, I've missed, I've missed my youth. Like I, you know, had kids at 21 and now I've spent all my twenties being this wife and mother. And I never got to explore who I was as a person. And that's not true of all relationships like that. I'm just saying that I have known people that have been in those types of relationships and woke up one day and went, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing with my life? Yeah. Like you say, it's not the same for everyone. Some people love that and they're very happy with that lifestyle and good luck to them. But you will get some who think, wow, I could have done it. And then, you know, you can't beat the ticking time that is your life, unfortunately. It's hard to go back and relive your youth when you're 35. Yeah, those are years you just can't get back. I mean, you could try, but it's like going out to clubs and stuff doesn't quite have the same flavor when you're like, you know, 35 as it did when you're, you know, 21. No, and you just look a little bit like a creep, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So as far as Owen's home life or home environment, he lived with his younger sister, age five, and his mother, Stella, in Saltine. Saltine, for those who've never heard of it, is a village that is described as Art Deco. The village is set atop a cliff in Brighton. It looks absolutely beautiful. Stuart, have you ever been? I've never been, but I've heard of it, and it sounds very posh. And the way you've described it kind of fits how I had it envisioned in my head brighton's very down south and i don't tend to venture that far down south being a northerner there's a bit of a north south divide in the uk and um we sort of stick to our respective halves of the country unless we have to for a reason that can't be avoided maybe that's just me you're like east coast west coast in north america is very different yeah, the best the way I liken it to is Game of Thrones. So you've got the the North <laughs> versus the South, um, and I think the author of that, uh, George R. R. Martin, it must have based a lot of that on how England is, 
especially with like Sean Bean being from Yorkshire and being up north where I'm from. And then the Southerners or the capital or whatever being south and very posh and well-spoken and nicely dressed. So that's what it's like. Game of Thrones. <laughs> Absolutely. I love how you reference that. It's got to be like one of my favorite shows ever. Who doesn't love Game of Thrones? It's great, isn't it? I know. I miss it. So it must have been an ideal place for an like outdoor loving teenager to grow up. It was missing one critical thing, though, and that was Owen's girlfriend, Meg. The two had a long-distance relationship, and this was really difficult for Owen. I mean, I remember having a long-distance boyfriend in, like, I don't know, it was 10th or 11th grade, and it was absolutely torturous. It felt very Romeo and Juliet. It's like at that age, everything is so dramatic, and it just feels very life or death, you know? Yeah. I should have said it was like Romeo and Jules. Oh, look at you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, every, everything is so exaggerated when you're that young, isn't it? And I think we go through schooling at the most difficult period of our lives. So you're going through all these hormonal changes. You're trying to get to grips with your emotions. And at the same time, you're trying to study and learn things when all you're worried about is, you know, I've got a spot on my face. Um, who likes me? Who's talking about me? Meanwhile, you someone's trying to teach you how to do maths and trying to get you good grades so you can potentially get a good career. And it's just, for me, we go through school at a terrible time in our lives. Yeah, we really do. It's like the time when all those hormones are taking over our bodies and we're going through this process of individuation and trying to figure out who we are as humans. And it can be really difficult set amidst this kind of, you know, backdrop of high school where people can be very cruel and I remember being so self-conscious as a teenager. It can, like you said, it literally is the hardest time of our lives and we're expected to learn everything we know to set us up for life. It's incredibly difficult. So Stella Owen's mother was employed as a diving teacher. She'd led kind of a bohemian lifestyle for a time in her younger years. She spent time traveling the globe and it was on one of those trips that Stella would meet the man who would be Owen's father. The couple met on a beach in India. This sounds really romantic. Yeah, she sounds like one of these, um, we would probably call them hippies. <laughs> one of these um, edgy, artsy kind of um, people who like to go traveling and all over the world. And that's fine. It's just not for me. But yeah, I've never been to India, though. Yeah, my husband goes for work all the time. And I've traveled all around this kind of area. I live in Malaysia, but I've never been to India because usually when he goes, it's for He's stuck kind of in the city and it's a work trip and he's driving around from literal city to city with, you know, his partner there. And it's like, no, thank you. Like, I don't want to sit in a car with you guys for four hours in the traffic there. I think I'll pass. Yeah, the traffic's supposed to be notoriously bad over there, isn't it? Yeah, he always says it's just the worst. So it's different to go for a holiday. I would love to go, but I don't want to go when he's going for a work trip. I think I'll skip that. Yeah, I don't blame you for that. So the couple met and they quickly fell in love. But unfortunately, Owen's father would become stricken with a sudden illness and he would die two years prior to Owen's disappearance. That's so much for a teenager to handle emotionally. Yeah. What did he die of? Do we know? I'm not sure. It was really difficult. Like, I don't know. I kind of thought that it was maybe cancer or something, but I'm just making a huge jump there. I didn't read anything specific with regards to his diagnosis other than it was a sudden illness. Yeah, it must have been incredibly difficult. So he'll have been, what, 14 at that point. Yeah. That's, 
you can't even imagine what that must be like to go because you, you don't understand how to deal with things like that. So a lot of people struggle as an adult to deal with grief and to deal with loss. So to do it as a 14 year old, when you're trying to get your own emotions in check and then you're trying to process a loss of your father figure, especially as a young man as well, that must have been very hard. Exactly. And like, I really tried to dig into this specific detail and I was unable to find in my research exactly how Owen handled the passing of his father. But I think it's pretty fair to speculate that this must have been, like, as you said, he was a young man. He was only 14. It must have been really, really hard for him because if it wasn't difficult, like then we're dealing with a whole other set of issues. And I think Owen was a really sensitive kid. Yeah. And especially because everyone wants to impress the parents and make them proud and the boys want to impress the fathers the girls i imagine want to impress the mothers so it i just can't even fathom how hard that must have been for him and it shows again we'll see what happens in the rest of the story but in that two-year period he's clearly struggled to come to terms with that grief leading on to to the story of what you're about to tell me so i think even if you were sensitive or if you were quite you know, maybe a stronger person, for example, I think it would still affect you at that age. It's got to. I think it's going to affect everybody, like regardless of the type of personality that you have. Like, I think you're going to be affected by that insurmountable loss of a parent during this time where you're just developing into who you are as a person and you so much need that influence, support, and love from ideally both parents, if possible. Like he had his mom, had his dad, and then his dad's gone. Like that's so much for a kid. Yeah. It's almost like you've got someone holding your hand to get you through this difficult time and then it just slips away. You're wondering where to put that hand now because there's yeah. no one there to get to guide you. That's a really good way to put it. Like I can personally think back to those days being that age and like Stuart and I have mentioned, it's hard enough to navigate your teenage years. And that difficulty is compounded when one of the parents has passed away. It's safe to say that Owen would have grappled with this loss as any kid would when faced with the death of a parent. But we have to wonder if this would have in some way factored into his disappearance. I think so. I think if his father would have been alive, the potential is that he could have had someone to speak to. Because as much as his mother was there, as a young man, you still need that father figure because as good as your mum can be, they don't understand all of the male issues that we go through. And it's things that in 2021 are sort of being normalised. But when you're growing up, especially in how I was growing up, you know, the whole stigma of a man has to do certain things. He has to act in a certain way. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
where you have to be a man, all this kind of stuff, which is becoming a, a lot more pushed out, I suppose, and, and everyone's accepting whoever you are, which is the right thing to do. But I think growing up, when Owen was growing up and when I was growing up, to have that father figure taken away to to all of a sudden not be shown how to be a man, which again is a quite outdated term now, I, I just can't fathom how hard that must have been. It's definitely factored in to what happened over the next two years after that. Exactly. And like, even during those two years, it was said over and over again in all the sources that Owen was a good kid, which is such a shocker because sometimes people when faced with something like that, well, like you said, they'll push back, there'll be problems, but he didn't give his mother Stella much trouble. And like I said, I think he was more well-behaved than what is typical. I won't use the word normal. I'll say typical. It doesn't sound like he drank alcohol or did drugs insofar as I could tell. And I mean, either good or bad, you know, in not experiencing those things. So one doesn't experience them later. It seems like the fact that he didn't reach for those things when dealing with the death of his father, that looks like a positive thing and that he must have found some way to deal with his grief that was a constructive and not a destructive way. I'm just, I'm just grasping and speculating here, but a lot of kids will reach for, you know, drugs or alcohol when dealing with the loss because it's a temporary and easy fix, even though it makes things worse in the long run. Yeah. I wonder if he used his art as an outlet. It'd be interesting to see some of the things that he painted during that period, because I know a lot of people who experience traumatic times, whether it's an artist or a music producer kind of stuff, a lot of the external factors of their life affect that creative process. And I think that would have been his outlet. It's good that he's not turned to drugs and alcohol. That is just a, a quick fix that, you know, it might numb the pain initially, but that can lead down a really bad path. So it's good that he didn't do that. I think it'd be interesting to get an idea of the sort of stuff he was drawing or painting. Yeah, I'd really like to see the kind of art that he did as well. I didn't see any pictures of it, but I think you're right. He probably did use his art as an outlet for someone who's so gifted in that way, which he was described kind of, in every source that I read, that he was a really good artist. I think that's something that you could throw yourself into, that you can use to express your emotions in a constructive and healthy way. And you're probably right. That's probably what Owen used to try to help deal with, you know, all of these feelings surrounding the loss of his father. So tensions were bubbling up globally at this time and at home. The world was in the deadly grip of the coronavirus pandemic and lockdown had been put into place in England. Stuart, can you speak to your own experience about the initial lockdown in England? Yeah, so this was in March of 2020. I think it was round about the 20th, so not long before his disappearance, I think. I don't know the exact date, but it was incredibly difficult. Now, there was sort of rumours going around at work about this virus and this coronavirus, the joke being that corona was a beer. A lot of memes were going around about corona and all this kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, where I worked, it just went into panic stations and they said, look, you've got a laptop. If we said, can you work home tomorrow? Do you have that facility? And I said, yeah, of course, that's not a problem. Next thing I'm at home and I've been working from home since March now. Haven't stopped personally. I know a lot of people... Um, have been on furlough here, which is sort of a temporary leave from work, but you're still getting 80% of your salary. So it's been it's been difficult for people. At first, it might have been, oh, you know, I'm still getting paid a little bit for not working, but it soon becomes tiresome and repetitive. But the worst thing at the first lockdown 
was all the shops just got raided. So people were bulk buying toilet paper, um, hand sanitizer, all this stuff was just going. And people, I don't know what people thought was going to happen and why everyone was bulk buying toilet roll. But I've never had the cause to use more than the normal amount. I don't know about yourself and what it was like for your experience. It was the same thing in Malaysia at first. Everybody just kind of, everything was bought up. The, the shelves, all of the bread, all of the meat, everything was bought up and the shelves were just bare. I mean, luckily the food supply here was pretty good. There was only maybe a week where it was like that. And we never had a problem getting toilet paper. Like I know some people did in the UK and in the US. We could always still kind of find it here. But it was kind of a weird thing. It was like, do people think that this is going to be a walking dead scenario where we've got to just, it's all you like those doomsday preppers, right? It's one of those like prepper scenarios where you've got to have all this canned food and all this toilet paper because Lord knows we become savages if we have, we aren't capable of, you know, being able to wipe our butts. I mean, luckily here we have butt hoses in Malaysia, like all of our toilets also have butt hoses. So the need for toilet paper is less in Southeast Asia because most like homes, especially modern ones, have a regular toilet along with the hose. So it's yeah. not as big of a deal. So we're very behind the times with our butt hygiene in the West. <laughs> <laughs> we, don't, we don't tend to have uh, bidets or hoses or that kind of stuff. And it's just weirdly, it's not part of our culture. And if you think about it, that's very, very strange that you, and this is going pretty off topic, but the fact that you use paper to clean yourself, whereas a hose or you know a shower would be more hygienic, I suppose. Very strange. I wonder if people were just buying toilet paper in bulk because they saw people buying toilet paper in bulk. You know, that sheep mentality. If you yeah. see someone do it, like, like lemmings, if you see someone do it, I better do it. I don't know why, but I'm doing it. Yeah, exactly. Like this woman's taking, you know, all the rolls of toilet paper. So I better do so too, because I don't want to be the one person left out without toilet paper. Like, what would I do? I mean, I could imagine if it was, say you're like any woman can think about this. If it's like feminine hygiene products, if you see that women are like basically stripping the shelves of all of whatever it is that you use, tampons or whatever, and that would be a bit of a panic moment if you think like, oh my gosh, like what if Amazon can't ship them? What if like nowhere can ship them? I better get several boxes because I don't want to have to even think about what life would be like without the ability to access that. So I assume yeah. people were just thinking worst case scenario. Yeah, it was a little bit Walking Dead, though. People were bulk buying stuff. And the worst thing was, even if you're on Amazon Prime, it wasn't coming next day. I think that was the, the most difficult part for a lot of people. They had to wait two days. So kind of at this point, the usually agreeable Owen has become more combative. He'd been arguing with his mom, Stella, as well as his girlfriend, Meg. It was really difficult to be in close quarters for so long with no foreseeable end in sight. Like, I can't imagine what this felt like for a teenage boy when his lifeline was his girlfriend just knowing that it may be months until he gets to see her, like it would be really heartbreaking. Yeah, I think looking from the other side of the coin, however, the levels or the statistics as far as domestic violence in the UK, they rose dramatically during that first lockdown. And I think as much as he will have missed her naturally, 
in a way it might have been not how his story ends out maybe that's a bad example but a lot of people because you know it's like when you live with someone and you both go to work and you see each other at the end of the day for a couple of hours then you go to bed and then you repeat but people then weren't working and they had to spend 24 hours a day seven days a week together they couldn't go anywhere they had no outlets so that's one of the reasons why there's been such an increase in domestic violence here throughout the lockdowns and throughout the pandemic. But as a young guy, not having that married lifestyle, then it will have been tough for him to know that he can't see his girlfriend because it was very, very strict in that first lockdown. It is still strict now, but we can go to shops and stuff now and we can do more things now than in that first lockdown. It was very strict, that first one. Yeah, and like their relationship had been really good up until that point, but the couple did have little fights in the days leading up to Owen's disappearance, but he seemed to be really madly in love with Meg. Yeah, and at that age, you don't really know what love is, but I'm sure he was uh, head over heels in love with her, or so he thought. He was very, and again, it's hard for me to speak on someone's behalf, but looking back when you're 16, is it really love or is it just something you've not experienced that you enjoy? You know, it's that's a different debate. But if he says he was in love with her, I believe him. So as far as the history, the friendship and the relationship between Meg and Owen, the two had been friends for five years. So they'd known each other since they were 11 years old and began a relationship when they were 14. I mean, that's some crazy history. It's like going back a lifetime at that age. I can see why they had such a deep connection. Yeah. So it sounds like they basically met in high school because that's when you would start at age 11. And then they've known each other through, maybe they were in the same form. Maybe they had some lessons together. A couple of years in, they've started a relationship. It's, it's like a deep rooted connection in that you're going through all these hormonal changes together with someone and you're experiencing it all for the first time and sharing that for the first time with someone can only deepen that connection. And starting off a relationship as friends too, it can lead to, you know, a deeper connection and closeness because you've got that level of comfortability already. Mm -hmm. The two had met because of the connection their families shared. The Hardings and Meg's family, the Wells Roads, chose to homeschool their children. Though it is worth it to note that at one point, Owen did attend the Brighton Waldorf School, an alternative education school. It is also reported in sources that Owen would go on to begin college, studying art and film. He would attend Sixth Form College. Okay, can you explain what Sixth Form College is? Yeah, so basically when you go through high school and you finish at age 16, generally when you go to college, you would go to a separate institution and do two years of college from age 16 to 18. But some schools have a Sixth Form College within the halls. So you would do those extra two years at the same institution where you completed high school. So it's a form of college, but you do it at the same place that you did high school, basically. You don't go to a new place and meet new people, have new teachers, for example. You would do it with the same people you always spent high school with. All right, that makes total sense, because I've heard of it before and like heard it thrown around, but it just really didn't make any sense to me. Yeah. So prior to the pandemic, Meg had just been to visit Owen a short while earlier. She lived like quite a distance away, some 280 miles, basically an ocean away if we were to think in teenage distances when neither has a car. And in the UK, that is considered quite a distance. That's probably hard for some people who live in massive countries to appreciate. But because we're such a small country, if you 
travel down like I'm in Yorkshire. So if I went to Manchester, that would be about 40, 45 minutes in a car. That's seen as not a long drive, but it's, you know, it's, it's pretty far away in our mentality. 280 miles would be like from here to London, for example, which is like a four or five hour drive, which even as an adult, that's a long way. <laughs> but for kids without a car, that is that is to the moon and back. So it seemed clear from the jump that this pandemic was going to be a major challenge to their relationship. And it seemed that this reality had sunk in with Owen, resulting in the 16-year-old exhibiting frustration. He was clearly under an immense amount of stress. It was hard enough for the two of them to spend time together under the best of circumstances. Owen had to be wondering, like we all were, what's next? Uh, Yeah, I think the worst part, especially about that first one, the first lockdown was... Nobody knew when it was going to end. It had never happened before. Now we have review dates set in place. It might be six weeks, for example. But back then it was ongoing. And I think it lasted till around June from memory. So there was you could watch the news every day and it, you wouldn't have any more clarity on what was going on. So it was definitely left scratching your head as to what the hell was going on. So Owen had been discussing lockdown with his girlfriend in the days and weeks leading up to his disappearance. He would joke back and forth with Meg. He would kind of kid that he was going to journey to see her. Owen knew that it wasn't possible, though, that his mother and Meg's parents wouldn't allow it. But he couldn't seem to come to terms with the stark reality that would keep him away from his love. He wanted to see Meg, despite the obstacles, so they wouldn't have to isolate apart. It seems like Owen's having a hard time accepting the situation and how it's going to change his life moving forward in the next few months. It is, and it was like that for everyone. And again, it just goes back to the uncertainty of when it would end. A lot of people thought, oh, this is just going to be temporary. It'll all be gone soon. It'll blow over. But then when that didn't happen, people started thinking, right, okay, when is this actually going to end? Is it going to be not weeks? Is it going to be months? Is it going to be years? And this is people who have established lives. So for someone of Owen's age, wondering what the hell was going on, what he's going to do with his life. You know, he might have had all these great plans. If he's a wise young man, he might have had a career path that he wants to go down or to follow a certain ambition, whether it's the art thing or, you know, he might have wanted a future with Meg to move somewhere, for example. All that gets stopped now. And it's hard to process everything at his age with his dad recently passing and now trying to get a lockdown into his head and everything that's going through it. A difficult time for anyone, but someone in Owen's position, it just amplifies it 100% more. Absolutely. So for her part, it wasn't as if Meg didn't try to beg her parents to allow Owen to isolate with them. She said that her mother put the kibosh on that idea pretty quickly. She said no, that Owen was to stay at his own house and Meg was to stay at her house until the lockdown was over. But I mean, I get that. I can see why parents don't want someone else's teenager in their home during lockdown. It's more than enough to have one kid to worry about at their age. They would need constant supervision or there would be, of course, the potential for a quarantine pregnancy. These thoughts had to have crossed the minds of Meg's parents. No one wants a quarantine pregnancy. (laughs) Not from 16-year-olds, no. No. What's a kibosh? That's like putting basically a big no. Putting the kibosh is like no. Niet. Okay. (laughs) Okay, that makes sense. I figured that's what it meant. I've just never heard that before. 
So leading up to the disappearance of Owen, Meg states that it got rather tense between the couple, as it appeared that there was just no way to give Owen what he wanted. They were teenagers. They didn't exactly have their own places. As a result, they were forced to listen to their parents and kind of go along with whatever they said. So not only that, they now had to worry about following the government regulations surrounding travel during the lockdown. It was enough to make any teenager feel like a caged animal. And like my heart goes out to Owen at this time because this is just crushing. He must have felt as though the rug had been pulled out from under him. Yeah, the restrictions and stuff, especially with travel, is just so difficult to interpret and to establishing your head especially at that age because we have a thing here where people are classed as key workers and I'm not sure what the public travel like is now I've not used it for gosh knows how long but it was a case where only key workers could use the public transport what I mean by key workers is people who work for example in the NHS our health system or people who do critical jobs but that could go to people who work in finance you know people who potentially work in other lines of business can't think off the top of my head but finance is a key one because I work in finance and I've carried on working and I was technically classed as a key worker and you have to think about nurseries and stuff but if you're a key worker your kid could still go in that first lockdown doesn't relate to Owen but he's probably limited in where he could travel even if he wanted to go see Meg he probably wouldn't have been able to get on a train because he wouldn't have qualified Yeah, that's a really great point, right? Like, it's one thing to want to go and do it, but it's a whole other thing. Like, how are you going to get there? Are you going to hitchhike? Like, you probably can't take a train. Yeah, and that's it. And a lot of people were comparing it to um, the novel uh, 1984, you know, Big Brother and Control and all this kind of stuff. And there's so many conspiracies out there which you could lose hours of your life just looking into. But it's hard in a quote-unquote free society to be told that you can't do something. And that's where a lot of the frustration comes from, I imagine. So it's been obviously, like Stuart just said, it's been a difficult time for adults. But taking away the social network of teenagers in an actual physical sense could be quite damaging. So I dug into some research on the effects of the coronavirus on mental health of the general population. And I did find some interesting results. So in a study that was done in China by Wang et al., 1,210 people were asked about the psychological impact of the era of the coronavirus. 53.8% said that it was moderate to severe, like on their mental health. These are not teenagers. These are adults. The Kaiser Family Foundation did a survey and found that 45% of the adults in the U.S. report that their mental health has seen negative effects since the start of the pandemic. A study by Lies Hao said the analysis of 17,865 Chinese social media customers. The objective was to chart the mental health and emotional states of those involved in the study during the time of COVID-19. There was a general feeling of anger and anxiety with the joy in life diminishing. Depression was another common emotion in the reports of participants. That's fully understandable. Personally, I'm quite a quite a boring individual these days but the only two things I used to do when I was allowed was one go to the gym and two go to the barbers to get my hair cut and both of those have been taken away now the difficult thing is there's only so much Netflix one can watch before you need an outlet whether it's just a night out once every three months or something whether it's going to the gym for your mental health, for your physical well-being, it's all been stripped away from us. And it's only natural 
that depression slowly starts to make its way into your head because you don't see the end of it. If you see the end of something, if you see light at the end of a tunnel, it's probably easier to get through such a difficult situation. You might think, oh, I can't go to the gym. I can't go on holiday yet. But soon on this date, I'll be able to. We don't have that. It's all up in the air. And no one knows when this is going to end. And that's why a lot of this, I imagine, is affecting so many people's mental health. Yeah, I think it's just this uncertainty and not knowing when we're going to get back these things that they're not even really luxuries, like the ability to go to the gym is a major stress reliever. And it really helps with mental health of a lot of people. Like I'm somebody that enjoys going to the gym too. a guy. I'm fortunate that I've got the space, you know, in my condo to have been able to set up kind of a circuit so I can do like hit workouts, you know, on my own because our gym in my building and our pools closed. Yeah. And that's the thing. If you have the setup, a lot of people are lucky and have that. And that's great. For the majority of the population, that's just not something that they can have. And it's you can say you can do home workouts, you could do bodyweight workouts, you can go running, for example. Personally, I prefer the gym because that's like a dedicated place to work on fitness. And they've got free weights there and they've got all the stuff you can use and treadmills and stuff so you don't have to worry about the weather. And it's just difficult to transition from having all that equipment at your fingertips to having nothing and just using the world as your gym, which personally I find quite difficult. Yeah. If you're using weights and stuff, like I don't really use weights. I use more, do more body weight stuff with doing hits. So it's a little bit easier to do it at home. And as far as like you going to the barber, I've been cutting my husband's hair for the last year. I've been even cutting my own hair, which is something I never thought that I would do, but luckily I'm pretty good at it. So it's not really a bad thing, but it's still, it's still better to go to a salon. There's something about, you know, sitting in the chair, having them wash your hair, the smell of the shampoo, Mm -hmm. the scalp massage. It's it's something very relaxing about it. It is that, that in itself is a stress release. I quite enjoy getting my hair cut, which is weird, but like the barbers I go to in Leeds, it's a good set of guys. It's a good atmosphere, good music. Um, You know, there's a lot of banter goes back and forth and, you pay there for the service, they'll offer you a drink, all that kind of stuff. And just for 30 minutes, 40 minutes, it just takes, it's almost a form of escapism, which is weird because I'm only getting my hair cut and I'm paying for it, of course. But it's almost like like going to a movie and you lose yourself in that scenario or that situation for an hour and a half. It's kind of like that with the barbers for me. That's really weird. Not that weird because you're kind of at the mercy of somebody else. And it's like going for a massage or getting a facial for a woman. Like you're you're being pampered in that moment and you're kind of just like relinquishing control. And somebody else is doing it and you're just letting them. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what it is, yeah. So at this time, it's pretty safe to say that Owen wasn't alone in his feelings. Most of the global population could relate to exactly what he was feeling. Owen's mother, Stella, recalls the great amount of anxiety that swirled around lockdown in Brighton. Stella notes that it wasn't only Owen who was feeling it. She was feeling crushed by this anxious uncertainty. The same uncertainty felt the world over. Stella remembers that her friends were stressed as well. Everyone was unsure when they would be able to spend time together again. The future in the face of coronavirus was and is still incredibly uncertain. It's worse than ever. And like I said, that first lockdown was like three months, I think. And then we came out for two or three months and then we went back in. Then we came out and now we're back in again. You just can't see an end to it. Yeah. And like there was danger and so many hidden variables. 
It is situations like these that show us how little control we truly have. It is a difficult realization for us humans who like to believe in this kind of persistent illusion that we have far more control than we actually do. Yeah, free will is an illusion. We, if you think about it, we can't leave the country without approval. This is back before the virus. People think they have free will and free choice. And this is getting a little bit conspiracy theory, but I can't just go to France on my own decision, for example, and that's just across the border. I need to show someone my passport. It has to be valid. It has to be in date. I can't have any restrictions on it or any sanctions on it. That has to be approved by people that aren't me. It's almost like the country we live in, it's been referred to previously by people that it's almost like our prison cell in that you're in that cell, i.e. the UK, for example. If you want to go and visit a different it sounds really dark, a different prison or a different country, you can only do that if someone else says, yes, you can do that. And if they say, no, you can't, you can't do anything about it. Yeah, it feels rather arbitrary, right? Like, you know, it's up to somebody else. You don't really have control over it. And they can say no for a myriad of reasons or no reason at all. Mm -hmm. Exactly. The higher ups or the people in power, they ultimately make the decisions that control your life. So as much as you think you have free will, to an extent you do, of course. But in the grand scheme of things, for things that are important or a, a lot more serious, you don't really have the control. So Stella Harding remembers the day that her son Owen walked out the door, never to be seen again. It was March 26th. He didn't say a word. Owen was wearing a black hooded shirt, gray tracksuit bottoms, and white sneakers. He has brown hair and brown eyes and is six feet tall with a slim build. This description sounds like every teenage boy I see which kind of makes it difficult since there seems to be nothing that stands out in any meaningful way to set Owen apart from other teenage boys. I mean, it's not just teenage boys in the UK. What he's wearing there, so grey tracksuit bottoms or joggers, as we, as we would call them, white sneakers or trainers and a black hoodie, that's pretty much what I wear every day. <laughs> and I'm in my 30s now. So yeah, to differentiate him from anyone else on CCTV or something, you've got no chance. And it seemed like at this point, Owen was really tired of being cooped up inside. He was unhappy about the lockdown situation. So Stella just let him go off without any kind of argument. He may have needed to, in her words, quote, stomp it off. And I feel that. Sometimes when I'm angry, I like to work out, as Stuart and I have mentioned. When I was a teenager and I was upset, I loved to go for long runs. As an adult, I like hit, taekwondo or Muay Thai. But it's the same thing. It allows you to work through negative emotions through taking positive actions. Yeah, and it's such a good outlet working out. Um, and it's just a lot of people don't do it. And I think that's that's a real shame. They don't appreciate the positive impact it can not only have on your health, but also on your mental health, you know, not just your physical well-being. I was just looking there. You can look at when the actual lockdown began was on March 16th. So this him walking out was just 10 days removed from the lockdown. So it's really affected him quite greatly. If after 10 days, he's sort of had enough and that's when he's walked out. Yeah, like Owen had obviously, as we mentioned throughout, been super upset because he would have no way to visit his girlfriend Meg during lockdown. So the travel restrictions at this point are weighing heavily on the team. The trains, as Stuart mentioned, wouldn't be running as usual due to the coronavirus lockdown conditions. It seemed as if all roads to Meg were quickly closing, and this was causing a feeling of panic to rise up inside of Owen. 
This would be evident in the arguments he would get into with Meg on the subject. And I get that Owen was upset. I also feel for Meg in this scenario, though. She's pushed into a corner. She misses her boyfriend and wants to make him happy. But she's asked her parents and they said no. She likely feels as if there's nothing else to do. And every argument that transpired thereafter likely weighed heavily on her heart. It would have been difficult. And one of the most difficult things is it's almost 50-50. There's people here that strictly obey the rules. And there's another 50% that think I've had enough of this. I'm not prepared to do that anymore. So it's almost as if Owen thinks, no, I don't care what they tell me. I'm coming to see you. And Meg's like, actually, I'd prefer you didn't because, you know, I've been told that that's not allowed. So it's quite contrasting viewpoints from both of them. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, what are you going to do when you get here? Because my parents have already said no. And it's almost kind of like, it's not really a rational response on his part. He's just overtaken by emotion and the argument between the couple, like it would just again, bubble to the surface on Thursday, the 26th of March. Owen, who according to some sources left his house without saying goodbye to his mother or explaining where he was going. Stella heard him leave and assumed what any mother would assume that he'll be home soon. I mean, like what else was she to think? No mother ever thinks that today is the day that my child will disappear. And it's very common for, you know, as a young teenager to not really tell your mum where you're going. You want to sort of keep your business private. And it depends how close you are with your mum, I suppose. You might not think you need to tell them where you're going and they'll just assume that you'll be back. You know, who's to know what he was thinking? Maybe he thought he would be back, maybe he didn't. I don't know the rest of the story, but we'll find out. But yeah, I think it's quite typical to just leave and not say anything. Maybe in a global pandemic, it might have been more reassuring to tell her where he was going or what he was doing, but obviously he wanted to keep that to himself. So CCTV images capture the teen walking towards Banning's Vale in Saltine. He was headed towards the top of the cliff at 6.13 p.m., just as the sun had started to set. Witnesses would report seeing a young man matching Owen's description at the cliff top at 6.15. This is so eerie in that it's, I think it's the final sighting of Owen. That is creepy. I think cliffs in general are quite creepy because near cliffs, you generally have like a lighthouse and lighthouses are notoriously spooky. A lot of stories about lighthouses and stuff. I think just cliffs in general are quite eerie, but to see him walking up towards a cliff and on his own at night, that must have been quite strange to see. Yeah, and like the whole area is kind of cleared out of people, just seeing the solitary teenager walk there. I mean, I guess you might think he's just getting a minute to himself. He's going to gather his thoughts. I mean, if people are out for walks, it, I think people are often taking those breaks and just needing a few minutes by themselves, going near water. I mean, I get that. I live near water. And so there's something that's very calming about that. And But I agree. Clifftops can also be quite creepy. So this clifftop was really close. It would have been a relatively short walk from Owen Saltdean home. It was approximately only half a mile away. The area doesn't only have cliffs. There appears to be popular walking paths for locals who want to get out and get some fresh air, get some exercise amid lockdown. So this area is a crossroads that apparently connects South Downs with Brighton's eastern suburbs. I encourage you to Google pictures of Saltdean though. It really and truly is beautiful. I'm definitely going to look it up. I think the other thing as well in that first lockdown, I can't remember whether it was 30 minutes or 60 minutes, but you were only allowed out of your house once a day. And it was only to either go to work or to exercise. And I think it was only for 30 minutes and then you had to go back home. 
So there weren't many people out walking because you couldn't really do it back then. It's literally like jail where you've got 23 hours in the cell or whatever, and then one hour in the yard for exercise. Literally, that's what it was. Ridiculous. So this wasn't the last that Owen was heard from. After he left the house without saying a word to his mother, Owen called his girlfriend, Meg. He was reportedly really upset. He said that he had an argument with his mother, Stella. And I suppose at this point, the stressors must have felt as though they were piling on for young Owen. Like he's fighting with his girlfriend. He's fighting with his mom. He's uncertain over the future. And that's so much for someone his age to handle. It's just, you can't fathom it at that age. Cause it's just, it's like I say, it's difficult enough as an adult with a job and responsibilities, but for a teenager who doesn't know who they are yet, you just can't imagine what it must have been feeling. Yeah, and like the couple had just been arguing about the same thing kind of over and over. Lockdown was, as we've said throughout, weighing heavily and it was really causing tension between the mother and son, as well as between Meg and Owen. This is nothing strange as most families, I'm sure, can attest to the fact that lockdown has been really stressful, causing them to snap at or get into fights with family members more often than usual. I think my husband and I may have initially got it on each other's nerves more, but now we're kind of finding our groove. What's it been like for your family, Stuart? To be fair, it's been all right for me because I've been working. Um, So I can just lock myself away and get along with my work for sort of eight hours out of the day. And then when I finish, there's time to go on a walk, for example, for that that slot that we're allowed out of the house for that brief period when we're allowed out of the jail. So it's not been too bad. That first lockdown, I remember it. And again, it was like three months. Um, So there was myself and then there's my partner and my daughter and she was on furlough and my daughter was still going to nursery two days a week. So that was fine. So she would be sort of, it's hard with, with a child and you can't take them to go to like soft play areas. I don't know if you have those in North America. It's basically like, like an indoor play center with loads of soft, like slides and ball pits and kind of stuff. I don't know what you'd call that. We call it soft play. You could take them there and, but that all got shut. So then it was nursery or at home all day. And if it's rubbish weather, you can't really do anything. And then she doesn't have a nap. And then it's just so stressful. But to be fair, it it was okay that first lockdown. I didn't mind it. That might have been okay for you, but it's probably hard for your partner because she's got the, you know, two and a half year old and she's on furlough. And once, you know, those soft play areas are closed and if she's not at nursery those two days, it's a lot of responsibility to entertain a two and a half year old falling on her shoulders. Well, you've got your work to worry about. Yeah, I really appreciated having work. That was almost an escape for me. So I was quite glad that I was working because... If it had been roles reversed, I think I'd have really struggled just watching my daughter. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All day. Five days a week. Seven days a week. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so it seemed that the separation of Owen and Meg was kind of the crux of most of the disagreements. And I'm sure this was the case even pre-pandemic. Since the distance in long distance relationships is typically the greatest source of strife for couples who are separated. Yeah, I can imagine that. I imagine long distance is hard anyway, but you would always have a date to look forward to, for example, whether it's, oh, we'll see each other in a month. You know, um, you can plan things in advance, I guess, if you live long distance. And again, for UK, long distance is like 100 miles away, 200 miles. We consider that long distance. That's not even crossing a country's borders. But in the lockdown, you can't even plan when you're going to see someone So it just makes it more stressful. You'll probably start doubting the relationship. Is this worth the stress? Do we want this? Are we strong enough to cope without seeing each other? All these things must have been festering in both of their brains. Yeah, and Stella had to have known that there was no way to give her son Owen what he wanted. It was just better to let him cool off at this point because, you know, they got into that fight and it's better to just let him walk off, you know, get his bearings, then come back. So once he got onto the phone with Meg, this appeared to calm down Owen. Meg said by the time they had finished their conversation that Owen seemed less tense. He claimed that he was going to sit down and just kind of watch the sunset. This was the last call that would come from Owen's phone. This was also the last time that anyone would speak with him. Like poor Meg, she thinks she's turned a corner in her conversation and Owen's improving and he's starting to feel better and then she just never talks to him ever again. That's strange. It's almost like... Maybe he was at a point of accepting what he knew was going to happen. So therefore, any tension that's built up in him has diminished. But unbeknownst to Meg, she's thinking, oh, maybe we're going to get on a little bit better now. Not realizing that it was actually the start of something quite dark. I think that's a pretty astute observation, and that's kind of where my mind went as well. And I'm not saying that's what happened here, but oftentimes when people have committed to the idea of completing suicide, oftentimes their mood will improve and they'll actually seem happier because they've gone and they've made this decision and it can kind of be misconstrued as somebody taking a turn for the better, which is what I think you were pointing out with this conversation Mm -hmm. with Meg. And I think that's very possible that that was what was at play here. Yeah, I think it's one of those things, not only if you're in that dark place and that's what you've decided to do, it's not only coming to terms with that and accepting that this is what you're looking to do, but it's also taking back some of that control And if you feel like your life is no longer in your hands, but the one thing you have control of is whether or not you carry on living, for someone in that dark place, it must be quite an enlightening thing to feel, I suppose. Yeah, I I guess we can only speculate on what he was feeling, but it does seem to be really perplexing that all of a sudden it's like all he's happy and he's accepting of the situation and then she just never speaks to him again. And so... Cell triangulation shows the location of Owen, and it bounced off of a tower at Long Ridge Avenue, so it's kind of close to the top of the cliff. And at 6.23 p.m., Owen's phone was disconnected, so it was unclear if it was in the water or if it had simply been turned off at this point. Like, ugh, either way, this is not a good sign. It's not a good sign. It's amazing how good phone towers are when it comes to investigating the location of people. I was recently researching a case yesterday and one of the key pieces of evidence 
to prove that these four suspects were in the same place at the same time was by you know triangulating their phones off of one tower so they could pinpoint their exact location at the same time. It's amazing that technology, but yeah, it makes you wonder whether he's just launched his phone into the sea or if he's just turned it off or if he's stamped on it or whatever has happened. But yeah, that's quite foreboding is the word, I guess. So Meg attempted to call Owen to follow up their last call, like perhaps to check on Owen just to kind of make sure he really and truly was all right. So she rang him at 6.32 p.m. And by that point, it was too late. The call would go straight to voicemail. So Meg had to have been wondering, what happened to Owen? Why isn't he answering my calls? Meg knew he wasn't busy. He said he was watching the sunset. This must have been so confusing for the teenager, and I'm sure Meg was beginning to worry at this point. Like, Owen always answered her calls. He always wanted to talk to Meg. And this is where he kind of just appears to be ignoring her. This isn't really lining up. Yeah, I mean, she's probably thinking a multitude of things. She's probably thinking, has his battery died? You know, if if you're a teenager, you're on your phone all the time. Has he not charged his phone? Has his battery died? Has he turned it off? Has he gone dark, as I would call it? You know, just taking some time to switch off from his phone, from all social media, just to appreciate the sunset? Or has something more sinister happened? All this must have been going through her head. And Stella, Owen's mother at this point, she seemed kind of unbothered by the absence of her son. And why would she be worried? He was 16 and he'd just gone off for a walk. Or so she thought. And if Stella had just had an argument with Owen, as Owen had told Meg, then perhaps she thought, good, you know, just walk it off, calm down. Or as she said, stomp it off. This is a really reasonable assumption, and I'm sure Stella was happy he was getting out his extra energy. I know I feel much better after I go for a walk to clear my head. With everyone stuck in the same house in close quarters, when someone's energy levels are off, it almost affects everyone. It does. It's almost like a vacuum, a negative energy vacuum. If someone is in a dark place, it can almost drag you down to that level. So I think it's good to get out, especially getting out into nature. And it must be beautiful views there, as you've said, looking out at the sea and the waves and stuff on top of the cliffs and watching the sunset. I think that would improve anyone's mood, you would think anyway. So I think she's it's quite a natural thing to think, oh, I was just gone for a walk to let off some steam or stomp it off. And she probably had no reason to think anything different. You know, you live in such a nice place where a lot of people, I imagine, all you can do is go for a walk. You can't let off steam any other way. So, yeah. you know, maybe he'll be back for dinner or whatever. Yeah, that's what I think most parents would assume. This isn't a kid who drinks and does drugs and parties. So why would she have any case to kind of worry? She probably just thought he's going to go for a walk. He'll be back in an hour and then we'll eat and, you know, he'll have calmed down at that point. And obviously, Stella clearly just figured, like we said, he's just getting exercise and he'd be home shortly. But this appeared to not be the case. And the hours and the minutes just ticked by and Owen was nowhere to be found. And it was then like later on in the evening, as darkness had fallen over Brighton, that Stella jumped into action. She managed to get a hold of Meg luckily and Meg filled her in on their conversation and how the subsequent phone call had gone to voicemail. Okay, so at this point, Stella likely knows this is pretty serious. Yeah, because this is a kid that doesn't go out And as you say, doesn't party. He wouldn't go out and stay out for days at a time or stay at someone else's house or go drinking or doing whatever. So if he came home every night or he didn't normally go out or he would always let her know where he was, for example, you can understand why she's thinking something. Something's not quite right here. 
So Meg and her family, they immediately drove to Saltine to help Stella search for Owen. They looked everywhere in Saltine and by the cliffs. They drove far along the coast, going to New Haven. They went in old, abandoned and dilapidated structures, screaming his name. All to no avail. Owen was nowhere to be found. The teen had mysteriously disappeared. This had to be heartbreaking for family and friends, searching everywhere. And Owen is just nowhere to be found. Can you imagine just searching these abandoned structures? I mean, that's quite haunting in itself. But but what would you be thinking? Would you want to find him there for reassurance? Or would you hope he wouldn't be there? That's quite a weird thing to be experiencing. You know, you go to an abandoned building and you think, what if he's here? But then you think if he's not here, then I don't know where he is. So do I want to find him here? It's a great point, right? Like that was one of the things I'm glad you pointed it out because when I did the research, it was one of the things that really stuck with me about this is picturing his friends and family members, you know, Meg's parents, all these people going to these abandoned structures. And it's like, if that's where he is, what do you expect to find there? Like, it's not going to be positive. And like you said, is it preferential to not knowing? I, I don't know what was going through their minds at that time, but it had to have just been soul crushing. Yeah, I, I just can't put myself in that situation. It must have been awful. So as far as the initial investigation goes, the police jumped into action right away. It was reported in sources that as many as 80 officers were involved in the search. They searched the area that Owen was last seen, as well as the surrounding businesses. The lockdown had just come into effect, and that really kind of hampered their search efforts. This is a unique case due to the timing of the disappearance. I'm sure there was no rule book for police on how to proceed, given the new and dangerous circumstances of the pandemic. Yeah, they'll have just been guessing as they go along, which is not what you want to hear in a search case for someone. But, you know, restrictions were placed on everyone, and, and especially now with people who are sort of mobile phone warriors, and they'll run around with the video cameras out on the phone trying to catch out police. A lot of people, things I see online is, you know, people will film officers who might not have a mask on and then, you know, they'll call them hypocrites and stuff. There's been a lot of tension between the public and people like police and government officials following them around in the streets, trying to catch them out for breaking their own rules that they've enforced. So it must have been quite difficult to, you know, figure out what the hell do we do in this situation? And like you said, it was, what, the 16th that the lockdown had come into effect? And this is the 26th. We're not even two weeks in. So police protocols, I mean, it seems that they did a lot. It wasn't as if they weren't involved and they weren't committed to this search. But it's there must have been a lot of question marks for everybody involved. Yeah, it's so so new into everything. And no one knew what was going on at that point. Yeah, and people were initially not as keen to help in the search efforts or with the sharing of information. Most of the businesses with CCTV were closed due to the lockdown. There was an eerie silence throughout Saltine. A feeling of fear kind of permeated the investigation. It was a fear of the unknown and a fear of coronavirus that made investigations in this case exceedingly difficult. But undeterred, the police marched on. Yeah, and this is a time where people were so unfamiliar with the virus and you felt like, you know, if I'm anywhere near anyone, I'm going to catch this thing. So it's such a unknown thing that nobody has ever experienced, whether you're a young person, middle-aged or old. No one's been through this before. No one knows how to handle it. So as a policeman, you've got protocols. They're no longer valid, really. So what the hell do you do? 
So the officers investigating the case, they came up with ingenious ways of collecting video evidence. You'll love this. So residents who were close by where Owen was last seen were dropped off memory sticks. Then those individuals would download the footage onto the memory sticks. They would then leave it for officers outside of their homes. So they managed to keep the social distancing in effect as much as they could during the investigation. This is brilliant. Like what a clever way to collect information. That is good. And this is just me thinking of the negative all the time. What if they were downloading the footage and exposing it online? You know, that kind of stuff goes through my head. What if they weren't all law-abiding, good-hearted citizens? <laughs> that must have gone through their minds. Oh, probably. And like, I think you just hope for the best and you hope people are going to comply with, you know, what you're asking of them. And you really hope that none of the people you're asking are somehow responsible for what may have happened. And I'm sure the police are considering all of these as options at this point because they just don't know what happened. Yeah, it's putting a lot of faith in the public. And can you imagine if someone knew something and you sent them this footage and they were assisting you in something that they were involved in without telling you? So it didn't take long for the word to spread through the small, tight-knit community of Saltine. Before long, residents jumped on board to help when they realized one of their own was missing. They all did so appropriately, minding the social distancing regulations. Posters of Owen soon lined the Saltine streets, and everybody was talking about the missing teenager. Soon news spread to popular YouTuber PewDiePie and Zoe Ball from BBC Radio. They're both residents of Brighton and each posted an online appeal for information. Social media campaigns and a Facebook page sprung up. Soon it seemed like all of England was invested in assisting the investigation into the missing teen. Do you ever remember hearing about the disappearance in the press? It seems like everyone knew about it but me. I don't remember this at all. I mean, it was almost a year ago, right? So lots of things have happened since then in the media, and it's possible that you may have heard about it, and maybe it just kind of faded away. Who knows? Yeah, I'm quite rubbish when it comes to watching the news and stuff. Like, I used to watch the announcements from Boris Johnson, our prime minister, which was normally like five o'clock in the evening. I used to watch that for a few days, but that soon became tiresome. And apart from that, I don't really watch the news and people might think, how can you not watch the news? You know, you're not educating yourself. But the thing is, if I want to find something out, I will go and research it. If it's important enough, it'll work its way into my life, whether someone will tell me at work or my friend will tell me or my mum will tell me, for example, if it's important enough, it will come to me. But I don't typically tend to watch the news. Just It's just not my thing, really. It's not really my thing either. I find it can be difficult for my mental health because you're often hearing about a lot of negative things. And yeah, like I'll, I usually, this sounds really bad, but I get my news from watching like This Week Tonight with John Oliver. It sums up the entire week and it's funny and it gives you kind of, you know, a little bit of gallows humor along with like all the messed up things that are going on in the world. And my husband has a subscription to the New York Times. He'll keep me updated with things, but I'm the same as you. It's just better that if I don't based in kind of the negativity of everything and I think everybody's different if people want to go and research every single thing that's going on in the world good for them but I feel like you and I because you know we do true crime podcasts we research a lot of really dark things so being bombarded with dark news stories could probably be a bit too much at times yeah it's something where you don't need it in your life if, unless you're really into that stuff. And like you say, we look at enough dark things to not worry about stuff that's still going on in this day and age, I think. 
Exactly. So all of those who were involved in the search, as I mentioned, they abided by the strict social distancing regulations. So Watson had kind of written up a strict directive. He wanted to keep those who volunteered to search for Owen Harding safe. That meant that they had, under all circumstances, to abide by social distancing rules. This makes searching kind of a little bit more difficult and definitely more complex. So I suppose they were searching more open spaces and not dense woods. So it's not as difficult as it could have been. Yeah, the social distancing thing is a bit of a joke, really, because here it's two meters, whereas I know in the US it was six feet. Now, I don't know what the difference between one or the other is, but I know it's six feet isn't. Yeah, it's the same. I don't, it's, it's the same. Or it's, it's just short. I, I'm six foot one and I think that's like 185 centimeters. So just short of two meters, but it's pretty much the same thing, isn't it? Yeah, and, I think it's like what it's either what three and a half feet or three feet per meter. I can't remember. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. Anyway, but the point is everyone's got a different version of what two meters is. So some people will stand five meters apart, some people will stand a foot apart and think that's okay. And then you've still got TV shows being filmed and you know, sporting events are going ahead. So the thing about sporting events is I could, not now, but when we could play sport, if I'm playing football or soccer, I can be touch tight with someone or close and touch someone on the opposing team. That sounds worse than I intended. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but do you know what I mean? I, could I know what them. you mean. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I could do that, but I wouldn't be able to get changed in the same dressing room as my teammates. We had to get changed in the car park. Doesn't make any sense. Play f- no, I could play football with 21 other guys and be in close proximity within this two-meter rule, but I couldn't share a changing room with my own teammates. Yeah. So the um, whole social distancing thing is just ridiculous. So doing a search like in a closed area like a wood, it, it just would have been too difficult to stick by those rules. Yeah, and like the pandemic and the rules surrounding it and the interaction with other people, like it should have been an obstacle in searching, but it appeared that the community was going to do their very best to help support Stella in finding her son, Owen. So there were search teams that consisted of anywhere between 10 to 20 people. They searched the clifftop at Talcum Tai and the area of green space behind the Salt Dean homes. So their search came up empty. There was no trace of the missing 16-year-old. And panic had to be setting in at this point. Owen's not on land. He's not in the water as far as they can find. So, like, where the heck is he? Yeah. He's not in the air either, I imagine. I imagine he's definitely not in the air. Yeah. That's so just disappeared. Into thin air. So Stella has made a space to honor her son in the weeks following his disappearance. It served as kind of a place where she could maybe feel closer to Owen. And I saw photos of it and it's a beautiful place and it gives a nod to her bohemian past. Amidst the plants, Burnett Stella sits cross-legged with a Buddha statue. This photo, when I looked at it, I was just gutted. Like I could just see the pain on this mother's face. Yeah, it sounds really powerful. Probably not in the sense that you would think, oh, that's really inspiring, but sad, melancholic. Maybe that's the right word. Just a picture speaks a thousand words, doesn't it? And especially someone's face and you can see sadness in people's eyes. So it'd be interesting to see that photo. You should definitely look it up. I can't imagine how Stella felt like not knowing what happened to her teenage son. She turned kind of her yard into a camp in April. She chose to sleep outside and she was just 
obviously hoping and praying that somehow it would bring her missing son home. Can you imagine like just being so heartbroken that you're sleeping outside waiting for your missing child to return? Yeah. And again, this is clearly having a massive impact on her mental health. Personally, that doesn't make sense to me, but I get what she's thinking. Like if you're outside the house, you would in theory see them sooner than if they had to come and knock at the door. That's the only thing I can think of. But maybe she felt he was outside when he went missing. She wanted to be closer to him in that sense. So by sleeping outside, she's almost having a bit of a connection with him. Maybe that's what she was thinking. That's exactly where my mind went, is that Owen was outside when he disappeared. And somehow in her being outside, she kind of maintains that connection with him wherever he might be. So in the wake of Owen's disappearance, Stella's neighbors had given her a gift of a wood-burning oven. So she'd be able to put on a fire and kind of hunker down for the night. The fire would serve as a beacon. Stella hoped that somewhere far away, her son might see the fire alight in the front yard and make the long journey home. This symbolic fire burning, like there's just something so primal about that. And when I read it, it really kind of touched me on a level, like the grief that Stella must have been feeling. Yeah, it's really symbolic. And it can be quite, from someone on the outside who's not in that situation, you might think, well, that's just ridiculous. Like, how is he going to see a fire? Why is that so symbolic to him? But if you're in that situation, you're not in your normal frame of mind. So anything that would connect you or keep that hope alive. It's almost as if the fire, as long as that fire is burning, Owen is alive kind of thing. And if she keeps that fire burning, then there's always that chance and the hope that he will. I mean, seeing it is is just sort of symbolism, I suppose, for I see that as a representation of his being alive, the fire. And if the fire goes out, so does the hope that he's alive kind of thing. Oh, I agree. It's exactly how I saw it is that the fire is like symbolic of almost Owen's life force and also symbolic of hope at the same time. And to extinguish Mm -hmm. that fire is to basically extinguish any hope of Owen returning and also almost like extinguishing Owen himself. Yeah, exactly. So this experience has obviously been exceedingly difficult for Stella. That kind of goes without saying, obviously, and this is compounded by the fact that the main way human beings show each other support, compassion, and empathy is with physical gestures. Sometimes it's brushing a piece of hair out of someone's face, squeezing a hand, or giving a hug. In the time of the pandemic, Stella was forced to take a step back. Everyone wanted to be able to console her, to hug her, but like, alas, this was not permitted. At least she had her five-year-old daughter by her side to provide some modicum of comfort. Yeah, I think that's what's really difficult is the human bond that we have. And it can be something, whether it's a hug or a high five or anything, that closeness can't be there anymore. It's really weird on game shows where someone wins a substantial amount of money and they almost half step to go and hug the host and the host has to say, you know, we can't do that. And you sort of, normally you would embrace each other, wouldn't you? And like hug and jump around and stuff but you can't do that now. It's very bizarre to see. So for someone who's going through this period of almost grief at this point, to not be able to go around and console her and hug her, it just makes it so much harder for for his mum to get to grips with, I suppose. Absolutely. So the police believe that they searched all of the areas that they can search, right? Like they've exhausted all possibilities at this point. Detective Inspector Mark Rosser of Sussex Police believes that there isn't more that authorities can do in searching for Owen Harding. 
That had to be so difficult to hear for friends and family members, knowing that all leads had been exhausted. You'll always have that mentality that you can't give up. If you're in that situation on the family side, you'll never want the police to stop searching for them because you'll always hold hope that that person is out there somewhere. And if the police says to you, we can't do anything more, we're stopping this investigation, this search, that's almost like telling someone that their child has in fact died because there's no way of carrying on. They've extend, they've done everything they can. They've exhausted themselves of all possibilities. So to yeah. hear that from Owen's family's point of view, you just think, well, you can't stop now. He's still out there. I believe he's out there. You can't just stop searching for him. But again, that's it's emotion overcoming logic, I think. Exactly. And like, it wasn't for lack of trying on the part of police. During the search, they hit the ground hard and they searched high and low. But Owen was nowhere to be found. There is the faint hope that Owen may have, for one reason or another, boarded a bus. That still doesn't explain him turning off or destroying his phone after he'd spoken to Meg. If he was to take a long trip, especially to see his girlfriend 280 miles away, then wouldn't he want his phone? Like, this only seems logical to me. Yeah, a teenager would definitely want his phone. And especially if you're traveling that far, that's a good few hours on a journey. You're going to want to distract yourself by listening to music or going on social media, watching YouTube, something. You wouldn't throw your phone away for such a long journey. The police were smart. They brought an oceanographer on board for the investigation, Dr. Simon Boxall of the University of Southampton. The night that Owen disappeared was low tide. The wind had reportedly been strong that night and was blowing in a northeasterly direction. These variables add up to the right conditions for a body being taken out to sea, according to Dr. Boxall. He concluded that it was far less likely that Owen's body, if it had gone into the water, that it would have washed up on the shore. This is so heartbreaking, knowing that if indeed Owen was in the water, that it's likely that he may never be found. The sea frightens me to death because it's so powerful. And what's the earth, like 80% water or something? Something like that, and the, yeah. And the fact that the tides are controlled by the moon blows my mind. And the strength of tides and pulling and the undercurrents and all this kind of stuff this is why I personally stay out of the sea. <laughs> but yeah, that's, I mean, it's its crazy how these oceanographers can come to that conclusion based on the tides and the wind and all that kind of stuff and all the variables. But yeah, to hear that, knowing that if he is in the sea, he's probably not going to get washed up or at least he's not going to get washed up for a while and nowhere near here. Yeah, it's just a really heartbreaking thing for any family to have to hear, to know that if somehow he slipped or he went into the water, you know, kind of on his own accord, that the likelihood of ever recovering his body is looking like it's slim. It's just so vast. Like you said, like most of the planet is covered in water and he could be anywhere if he's in the water. It's, it's just so hard for the family and friends to hear something like this. And it's another thing to say, we can't ever find his body, but the most difficult part of that is if you don't have a body, there's always that hope that he's still alive and that you have to live with that for the rest of your life, potentially. So police all throughout England and parts of Europe are aware of this disappearance and potential drowning death of Owen. They are all on the lookout for any remains that may potentially wash up on their shores. As of right now, there's still been no trace of the missing teenager. That's frightening. You just can't imagine no trace. Like I say, you must think he's still alive. I would, if I was his parent. 
you'd think they've not found a body, so it must be still alive, surely. Yeah, exactly. Like you still hold out hope. If you can't find the body, then you think, okay, he's out there somewhere. He's not in the water. He hasn't washed up. He's got to be out there and we just still need to find him. Stella and Meg have both been bracing for the worst at this point. Stella says she's unsure if Owen's alive or dead, though it does seem by her words that she holds on to hope that he will at one point return. Once she lets go of hope, like what is there to hold on to? Stella does have her five-year-old daughter, Owen's younger sister. She was said to idolize her big brother, and this has been very hard on the young girl as well. Like, can you imagine a five-year-old girl? She's not only dealing with the lockdown, her mother being heartbroken, her father dying two years prior, but her older brother Owen is also missing. So I think the difficult thing at that age is that she's going to need such a carefully construed lifestyle path now set for her because she's not only dealt with all this grief and having to grow up without a dad now at the age of five and now a brother's gone missing to process that at her age is so difficult. She's going to need some real careful consideration as to how she develops into her teenage years, into her young adult years to prevent this affecting her mentality. It's going to affect her anyway, regardless as she develops into an adult, but it's going to be important now to try and minimize those effects as best you can. It's probably wise, I would have thought, to have her speak to some form of counselor at this point, just to try and process things. Maybe not yet, maybe a little bit later down the line, but because her mum mentally is in a very vulnerable position as well. So it's going to be hard to have that guidance at the moment because it's still so raw, but I think it's going to be crucial to prevent anything negative happening to his young sister as well. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think at the young age of five, she's dealt with so much loss and so much grief. And it's really hard to process at the age of five. So I think, of course, I I really hope the same thing. I hope that this little girl is getting some counseling, some therapy, or the help that she needs in some way. I mean, I remember when my parents got divorced, when I was really young, I was like, three or four. And I remember going to an art therapist and that was incredibly helpful in, you know, processing some of those difficulties. And that's a divorce. This is something far greater. This is the loss of not only her father, but also her brother now. And then watching her mother kind of spiral downwards with her own grief and the loss of Owen. And this is so hard for a child. This case is relatively new in that it took place less than a year ago and there still hasn't been any resolution. At the end, I'll provide contact information for the police after the theories. Okay, so theory number one, Owen Harding disappeared on his own accord, potentially to go across country to see his girlfriend, Meg. This has been discussed by the couple preceding the disappearance, though Meg had told Owen that her parents would not permit him coming and staying with them. They were to spend the lockdown apart. He was reportedly really upset at this, and it caused fights between the couple. So it was tense up until the last day that Owen was seen. I don't know. Is it likely that Owen would ignore Meg's words and travel across the country to see her, even though her parents said that he wouldn't be allowed? I'm not buying this theory. I don't think he would have done that. I think him going to the cliffs and stuff is probably to let out some frustration. I don't think he would have traveled so far in such a trying time when it comes to public transport. All the while his phone is off or discarded or broken. Yeah. To me, that doesn't f- that that doesn't fit. Yeah, it seems like such a long way to travel by uncertain means of transportation, only to be turned away at the door. 
And this also does little to explain, as you mentioned, the phone. Why would it be turned off? If Owen was planning on going cross-country, then why get rid of his one means of communication? Why would he cut himself off? What if he were to find himself in trouble? Like, this makes no sense to me. There is also the lack of witnesses and CCTV after the day that Owen disappeared. This case has been in the public eye, and it seems unlikely that he would have been able to slip by unnoticed by anyone. So you don't think that this theory is possible, right? Personally, no. As far as I'm aware, on all public transport, there is CCTV as well. So if he would have boarded a train or a bus or anything like that, the likelihood is he would have been caught on CCTV somewhere. Because I think on buses, they have CCTV not only showing people sat down on the back of the bus, but also at the front where people get on. And I think trains is a similar thing. So there's no way he would have got on public transport in my opinion without being seen there's just there's cameras everywhere in the stations and all that kind of stuff something would have been found yeah i agree i think that we would have seen him on cctv he wouldn't have got rid of his phone it just doesn't line up for me okay so theory number two a random stranger came upon owen and abducted him so if the stranger managed to do this they would have had to have been aware of the security cameras because we see owen on cctv and there appears to be no one stalking him it's difficult to say one way or the other without the body, though during lockdown, how many people would be hunting for teenagers to abduct? Like, I honestly don't know if it would make people more or less likely to engage in criminal behavior such as abduction. This is possible, though I don't know how plausible it is. Yeah, I mean, I suppose there's less people about to witness a crime, but on the flip side, there's therefore less people about to actually abduct. With a global pandemic and the risk of catching this virus off of a stranger who you don't know might have it, there might be a carrier that doesn't have symptoms, for example. I think it's quite a risky thing to, I mean, abduction's risky in itself, of course, but to do it in those circumstances doesn't seem logical to me. And the likelihood is someone would have been seen again by CCTV or by another witness, he would have hoped. Yeah, exactly. Theory number three, Owen committed suicide by jumping off the cliff. There is some indication that Owen was facing a great deal of stress in the weeks and days leading up to his disappearance. He was fighting with his mother and his girlfriend, Meg. He was facing the possibility of being separated from Meg for months. There was a huge degree of uncertainty in Owen's life. It's difficult to say where his head was at. Without any indication that he wanted to cause harm to himself, it's hard to say that this was intentional. We were unaware of any major mental health issues or past suicidal behaviors, though that isn't to say that there was none. Also, it's worth it to note that suicides are often done in a moment's notice. Those who attempt often leave behind no note and no clue. The difference in most of those cases is the body is discovered. Yeah, I'm kind of leaning towards this, unfortunately. I think possibly what may have happened is because he has had such grief with his father passing and he's such um, a mature young man in that he doesn't have an outlet like hard drugs or drink or anything like that, which would be a big stress release for most people. It's almost as if potentially it's all just built up and built up over time. Maybe he's gone for a walk to get rid of the stress and he's looked out at the sunset and thought, you know, this is beautiful. If this is my last sight, it's, it's absolutely beautiful to see. He's looked down and he's thought, you know, if I jump down there, there's no way it's happening. And the fact that he was in an improved mood 
at the end of the phone call and then he's destroyed his phone. Maybe he's just thrown it in. Maybe if he has jumped off the cliff, maybe his phone was in his pocket, for example. That fits my theory more than anything, I think. Yeah, I have to agree with you so far. That theory is lining up the most for me. And just given what we know about the situation, it seems to be the most plausible, in my opinion. So there's one last theory, and it's sort of like a a sub-theory on the last one. But Owen accidentally fell that day at the cliffs. This is just as likely as a suicide theory, I suppose. It is possible that Owen got too close to the edge and he tripped and fell. It's impossible to know. Even if a body was recovered in the future, we may never know the nature of what happened that day. It would be impossible to distinguish between a jump and a fall. Do you have any final thoughts on this case, Stuart? It's an interesting one. It's very sad. It possibly could have fallen, I suppose. I mean, if he's local to the area and he must know the cliffs if he's found his way there quite easily and it's quite close to his house, he would probably have known where to stand on the path as to not be too close. Because with cliffs, the path is normally offset, isn't it? A good sort of 10, 15 feet, for example, from the edge of the cliff. I think the likelihood of falling is less likely than an intentional fall kind of thing. But it just shows the difficulty that everyone's going through at this time. And especially only 10 days in when he's gone missing and at such a young age that I think... The virus doesn't discriminate and its mental health impacts. It doesn't discriminate. Everyone can suffer, whether you're a child, a young adult, a teenager, an elderly person, someone in the middle of your life. It affects everyone the same. And that, in a sense, should make us all unified, which it did for the first pandemic, um, for the first lockdown, sorry. Everyone was unified. We were all in this together and it was unique. And, you know, people would do pub quizzes on Facebook and stuff and a guy called Joe Wicks who does workout videos. Everyone would do that on a morning with the kids. Everyone was unified. But since then, when we've come out of it and back into it and out of it and back into it, that's all gone now. So there's no more unity and everyone's just judging each other. But it just shows how difficult it was, especially in that first lockdown. I think you explained it really beautifully. Like initially there was unity and now it feels kind of fractured where people just don't know what to think and what to feel. And there really is no end in sight. And we've been in it for a year at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's not going anywhere anytime soon. Stuart, thank you so much for coming on the show. Can you tell my listeners one more time about your podcast, British Murders, and where to find you on social media? Of course. So British Murders, again, it focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I like to focus on some of the lesser known cases. So I do 10 episodes in a season. Then I have a special two-part episode, which is on someone more notorious, between 15 and 30 minutes. So it's nice and bite-sized. You're in, you're out. You find out a bit about it. If you want to find out more, you can do your own research. It's on everything. Spotify, Apple, all the podcast apps. I do put them on YouTube as well, if that's your thing. And on social media, you can find me Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. That's where I am. So if you have any information on the disappearance of Owen Harding, please contact the Sussex Police at 4412-734-70101 if you're calling from abroad. You can also visit crimestoppers-uk.org and report your information anonymously. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you know anything about the whereabouts of Owen Harding, please don't hesitate to reach out to Sussex Police. 
Owen's mother, Stella, and his little sister deserve to know what has happened to him. If you have any comments or case suggestions, you can reach out to me on Twitter at Podcast Riddle, or you can email me at riddlemethatpod at gmail.com. If you want to become a supporter of the show, you can make a one-time PayPal donation to riddlemethatpod at gmail.com. I'm also on Buy Me a Coffee at one word, riddlemethatpod. Until next time, stay safe and remember, accept nothing, question everything. Hello, everyone. I'm Dylan. I'm Corey. I'm Kendall. Together, we host From the Middle, a comedy and culture podcast about being middle-class guys living in the middle of America, in the middle chapters of our lives, with points of view that fall somewhere in the middle. That's right, Corey. We chat about all things, mostly husband and dad life, geek culture and entertainment, from a relatively centrist and regular point of view. We all hear enough about the extreme ends of the spectrum. So we thought we'd create a conversational and relaxed podcast from a moderate perspective. Flyover state? Psh, more like uh, state fairs, livestock. Guys, what's, what's something that's cool and impactful that is the antithesis of boring? Yeah, I don't know, man. Listen to our podcast. We'd love for you to join the conversation. You'll forget you're not actually hanging out with us. That's From the Middle. Available wherever you find podcasts. And at From the Mid Pod. Everywhere. Hello, everyone. This is Robin Warder, host of the true crime podcast, The Trail Went Cold. If you grew up watching the classic television show Unsolved Mysteries, then this is the podcast for you. Each week, I profile a new unsolved murder or missing persons case and share all the baffling details. Afterward, I provide my own personal analysis and theories about what might have happened. This is a show for true crime buffs who are fascinated by cold cases and love to discuss them and pick them apart in an attempt to figure out the truth. So be sure to check out our podcast to learn about some truly bizarre unsolved mysteries where the trail went cold. Yeah.